You are listening to the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast with your host, Kieran Pedley. Um, it feels like something of a tumultuous week in Westminster. When is it not? Um, we've had new COVID restrictions announced by Prime Minister Boris Johnson as a result of um, growing cases and predictions of a second wave. And Keir Starmer has stood up to give his slightly unconventional, in current times, um, first speech to Labour Party conference as leader of course, with no audience. So it feels like lots to talk about, and we've had lots of numbers out at Ipsos this week on these topics. So to get the expert uh, view, I'm joined by Katie Balls of The Spectator, Deputy Political Editor at The Spectator, and uh, columnist at The Eye, and Ben Walker, founder of the Britain Elects website, which I'm sure people that follow me and this podcast will be very familiar with, and uh, a data journalist at The New Statesman. <laughs> Before we get into the sort of meat and potatoes of things and the numbers and that sort of thing, I just thought I'd get a snap reaction from both of you from the week. Um, Katie, I'll come to you first. I mean, what, what stood out for you this week? Well, I think coronavirus has been the top news item. It often feels as though that has been the case for months on end now. Um, but it was the week that Boris Johnson ultimately laid out the outlook roughly for the next few months. And it feels as though we're moving into different phase of living of coronavirus, uh, tightening of restrictions. And while uh, we were hearing over the weekend about things like a circuit breaker, this idea of having a short, uh, not exactly national lockdown, but quite severe restrictions. We haven't got that, but it's clear that the direction of travel is, I think, that we're going to have tighter restrictions going forward. And for the Prime Minister, to, I think, to say that for the next six months we can expect this was quite a moment and does just show how there's, you know, there's no quick way out of this and no guarantee even in six months things are going to drastically improve. Yeah, I must say I was uh, I was watching the news with my dinner the other day and just from a personal perspective, there was a sudden moment when the penny dropped that, well, it's quite hard to see how restrictions get relaxed in sort of November or January in the middle of winter. So it does feel like we're in it for the long haul, but we'll have to, we have been already, I suppose, but we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. I mean, Ben, what's, um, ben, what stood out for you this week? Yeah, it's similar, similar to the COVID-19 uh, new restrictions, but I think something a little bit niche, I suppose, is what's happening in Scotland, rather, is, well, first of all, in Glasgow, in a, in a student hall in Glasgow, you're seeing an outbreak of infections. This is, the, this is the worst time to see a rise in infections when people are returning and starting at university. But the specific thing about Scotland is this, is that I suppose maybe we were expecting England, Scotland and Wales to be at one in announcing these new measures, but uh, the surprise, or rather maybe it shouldn't be surprising, is the Scottish government's decision to break with Westminster again and go further with the measures, instituting a ban on household visits. Now, I say this, that, that this stood out to me because um, the issue with the union obviously is quite um, tenuous, I suppose. Um, it, it's because breaking with Westminster for Scotland is something the Scottish government has had a habit of doing, not least to the Welsh government. And it's something also the Scottish public seem to like and respond accordingly. It's something that only furthers, I think, the perception in Scotland that it can tackle the pandemic on, the, on its own terms, that the country, if it decides, can go it alone, that independence is not as perceived in the same risky light as in 2014. If you have more instances of uh, tackling lockdown and it appears that Nicola Sturgeon and the Hollywood administration are doing it on their own terms, then the perception that they can go it alone, I think, is only going to intensify. Yeah, Scotland is interesting. We'll have a podcast coming up in the next few weeks on Scotland because our, our Epsos Mori uh, Scottish office is uh, doing some polling on the um, the parliamentary elections. But does 
that does loom on the horizon. Um, back to COVID, Katie. I mean, how, how worried is the government? It feels like a month ago, the communications was all about um, getting, maybe through columnists as well as, um, as well as the government directly, but it was all about getting back to work in inverted commas and um, trying to get back to a normal way of life. And then all of a sudden, it feels like um, uh, we, we're back into talk about a second lockdown and working from home if you can and so on and these new restrictions. I mean, do you think this has caught the government by surprise a little bit? To be honest, I think this year, the summer was always going to be the easiest bit, even though we had restrictions then. There was a sense that not so much about well, the virus is stronger in, you know, summer weather, winter weather, not so much that, but all the things that you can do to try and reduce the chance of passing it on, you know, so dining outdoors, meeting your friends in a park, um, things like that, I think, meant that you could see more easily how you would live over the summer. So I think there was always a sense autumn and winter were going to be trickier, but I do think the pace um, by which it has happened has taken the summer government by surprise. I think people thought you'd probably get a little bit further, perhaps to October before, before you had to do a lot of this stuff. Um, and I think it, it clearly does feel a bit confusing when there's been a big, you know, well, not, it never quite materialised in the way perhaps we expected it. But lots of talk about getting people back to offices and a potential campaign to do that. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, actually, if you can work from home and your employers have that, then you should do that. So it definitely feels like a shift. I think there's probably a bit more nuance in some of the new restrictions and some of the guidance, such as the working from home one, um, than if you go back to when we had uh, everything in the spring. Um, but... I think going forward is ultimately, again, just represents the fact there are two different types of crisis here. One is an economic one and one is a public health one. And I feel that over the summer, the economic one was the one that was the top focus in government. Um, and now we're back to public health being the number one issue. And it's interesting when you look at the, the polling, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, the, the, the public are always uh, keen on um, the people's health being prioritised over the economic health of the country. So we have a question that says the government, you, you have to choose between two options, essentially. 45% um, say the government should prioritise people's health by having more restrictions on public events, workplaces and travel. Um, uh, 45% say that. 11% say the government should prioritise the economic health of the country by having fewer restrictions on public events, workplaces and travel. And then a third sort of say uh, both equally. But what, what, what stands out to me is that the, the 45% that say uh, people's health should be prioritised is down from 53% back in May. Um, that doesn't mean that people are saying let's prioritise the economy over people's health, but there seems to be a softening uh, of that sort of unambiguous, it's all about health. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out uh, in the coming sort of weeks and months as, as the economic impact bites. Um, ben, on, on public opinion on this, um, where do you think the public are on some of these uh, these new restrictions? I mean, it always strikes me that the public seems to be more on board with quite strong measures to combat the virus and perhaps more so than some of the more vocal columnists. Yeah, yeah, more so, more so than we think. We do get the impression that the public are being, well, we get the impression from some columnists that the public are being dragged, uh, kicking and screaming towards a lockdown. But actually, even on the world stage, Britain's um, just marginally more supportive of going into lockdown, harsher measures on, uh, you know, well, locking down than other countries. Um, Let's, let's reference some Ipsos Mori polling. And, go, go on, uh, man. Yeah, like we always say, like that. <laughs> um, a plurality prefer people that prefer prioritizing people's health over economic health. The issue of the economy doesn't really come to the forefront of much of the public's imagination. And uh, when the government uh, eased lockdown in May, when you could travel from Berwick to Broadstairs in England, uh, that's when 
the public began to see the government's announcements and uh, lockdown measures as just not very clear. Like in, uh, according to Ipsos Mori in, I think it's May, 43% of Britons said uh, they did not find the government's messaging, the government's communication clear. Now, in a normal election, in a normal whatever poll, that really doesn't matter because 56% found it clear. But you need the overwhelming majority, not just the overwhelming majority, you need all Britons on board in a, in a crisis like this. And so for 43% to be uh, uh, confused about the messaging back in May was bad. That has risen since to 54%. 54% uh, last weekend uh, found the government's communication not that clear. This was before uh, the new announcements of uh, working from home if you can, 10 p.m. Mm. curfew and all that. And uh, of, of what we know, the six six person uh, rule, the rule of six, has the backing of most Britons, a plurality at least. And uh, on the wider issues of uh, 10 p.m. restaurant closing, curfew, that kind of stuff, it's the overwhelming majority of Britons do back that. We have another poll elsewhere, won't say the name, another competitor, <laughs> uh, where you have um, close to around 70% of Britons who say they support the new uh, guidelines, which actually is quite, quite impressive, really, because in May, in June, you had a good one in three Britons who weren't too sure about supporting the government's new guidelines. Now it's getting into overwhelming majority territory, and that's what you need in a crisis. Just remember, going back to the uh, stay-at-home order uh, on March the 23rd, a poll released the day after found just 4% of Britons opposed it, mm. just 4%. Now we're seeing, what, 17% of Britons opposing these orders. You need the overwhelming majority of the public to be behind you for this this policy to work. I, I want to bring Katie in on the comms aspect, but um, just a, a couple of brief comments on that. I mean, one thing I always say as, as a pollster um, to, to clients, whether they're in government or business, is that part of the problem with public opinion is that it can change. So um, whilst people prioritise health over the economy now, and they perhaps always will uh, for understandable reasons, um, we shouldn't sort of assume that people will be sort of relaxed about the economic fallout six months from now, depending on how that plays out in a post-furlough, uh, sort of post-eat-out-to-help-out world. Um, but there is definitely, back on the sort of the measures themselves, we, we, we asked about a series of measures this week. And it always strikes me just how strong the government, uh, the, the public are about uh, in their support for some quite, quite harsh measures, really. So, uh, three quarters support local lockdowns where coronavirus cases are rising. Seven in ten support banning all travel in and, in and out of the country, which obviously is would be a very uh, drastic measure. Uh, clear majority, so almost six in ten would be up for implementing curfews to prevent people from going out at night. Um, and around half are up for closing all restaurants, pubs and bars with one in four opposing. Where it starts to get a little bit less clear is on things like schools and universities. So um, only a third um, support uh, closing all schools and actually 39% oppose that. And um, similar numbers for universities. Um, so 39% support closing universities, 30% oppose. So when it comes to schools and universities, a bit less clear. And then on another national lockdown, 44% support that, 34% uh, oppose, the rest sort of neutral. So whilst you can't necessarily say the public is explicitly against a national lockdown, uh, um, akin to what we saw before, you've got less than half actively supporting it. So that does show why maybe the public are up for some strong measures, but going into full lockdown again at the moment might be a bit of a tough sell. Um, but Katie, I'll come back to your, just your general thoughts on some of that, but also this idea of the, the comms from the government being unclear. So a majority now saying um, the government's unclear in its measures. Um, that's obviously a, that's a, that's a major challenge, as Ben says, isn't it? Yes, I, I think there's a few ways of looking at it. It's 
partly because the message has got more complicated and also I think it's slightly inevitable. So I think you can clearly look at things the government has done which they could have done better. But I also think just the nature of the fact the message is not as simple as stay at home, save lives. It's a very clear message, but also it conveyed a very clear policy, which is that they really didn't want anyone out doing much at all. And I think the issue now is if you have a much more nuanced type of policy where some people can do certain things, they're changing things as much as they can, but it's you know weighing the various things up, it's hard to find a snappy slogan that's going to you know convey that. And I think that because the rules have changed a bit over the summer, you saw the rule of six, this effort to try and simplify it. Um, and that clearly was an acknowledgement um, that they do not think people actually, it's not just that people are breaking the rules, Lots of people don't even realise they're breaking the rules or hadn't been. And I think that anyone who, you know, dined out in restaurants can see that this idea indoors was one of a household, but lots of people thought it was six anyway. It was just a lot to, I think if you're not paying full attention, it was something that was quite hard to get around. Um, I think with the rule of six, there has been more of a simplification. So I think you can see them trying to bring in these things. So... In terms of how they're getting the things across, I think it is clearly a bit confusing if you have a situation where you, at one point you're saying, you know, ministers are going on the airways saying people should get back to the office and then you have Boris Johnson changing the guidance. Um, I think some of that is unavoidable if you are going to have a policy where you change depending on uh, rates of infection. Um, but I think there was an interesting point a few um, weeks ago when Boris Johnson um uh, spoke addressed his own MPs and he said you know do you know what the rules are and they ultimately uh, well, at least a high enough number didn't know <laughs> uh, which is worrying in some ways to the point that I think it actually did trigger some of this trying to re re-explain I do think perhaps and this is a slightly depressing way upside but I think it probably will get simpler as we go on through the year because I think the rules are going to get tighter and if we get to a situation um as uh, Ben was mentioning, so the situation as we currently have in Scotland of not going to other people's households, I mean, I think that's the general direction we're going in. So actually, it's probably going to get to a point where it's quite easy to work out what you're allowed to do because you can't actually do much. Mm. It is true. When you have this nuanced message, it's difficult because different people will hear different things. So if your fundamental message is try and go go back to life as normal as possible within these certain confines, then some people will hear life as normal, some people will hear the confines. And it's, uh, it, yeah, it's a difficult uh, message to land when it's nuanced. Um, let's move on to one of the other major political stories this week, which was um, Keir Starmer giving his first uh, le- uh, leader speech at, at Labour conference. Uh, obviously, quite strange circumstances, Katie. There was no Neil Kinnock moment from the mid-80s, was there? No, no audience in the... Uh, in the hall or anything. Um, what did you make of his speech uh, and, and what do you think he was trying to achieve? Well, as you say, it was a strange way to have a leader speech because you have no audience. I think it was the deserted museum where you're allowed a maximum of 12 people in the whole building. So, and also they had to move the time um, because coronavirus just obviously took over the news agenda and it was the day Boris Johnson was going to be making announcements. So they moved at the last minute to even earlier to 9am. Um, but I think what Keir Starmer was trying to do is ultimately introduce himself to the public a bit more. Um, I think that since he took over the late, um, the Labour Party, you've seen that Labour are doing better in the polls. I think partly that is the Tories doing badly. You know, it's not all on Kirstam necessarily doing well, but he, I think, has done made a few moves that sent a message to the public that Labour is under new management. That's one of the lines, you know, this is new leadership. But I think in terms of who he is as a person, there's clearly still quite a bit to do to 
put his personality or you know who he is um in terms of the public perception i think and the speech seemed to be doing that he almost was defining himself more by saying what who he wasn't so he talked a bit about uh, the previous leadership so you saw him distancing himself from jeremy corbyn to a degree when he spoke about the importance of winning and um, also his support for national security you know he didn't have to be sherlock holmes to join the dots as to as to <laughs> who he was trying to distance himself from but I think and also he talked about um, Boris Johnson and said you know he actually said something I think along the lines you know the difference between me and Boris Johnson and at that point he started um, ultimately suggesting Boris Johnson prior to becoming prime minister had been not using his time particularly well writing articles about bendy bananas while he'd been working in his law career and I think the idea is he is a man of substance and uh, someone who's serious and that's what they're trying to get across I think that there's still work to do that I don't know if people do quite know what he is like as the person yet and what the policy lacked completely was any policies now I think you can defend that in the sense that do you really need policies when you're this early on when we've just seen the budgets being cancelled you know it's not a time where it's easy to make any long-term plans but I do think you you a policy here and there does give you a sense of what he'd actually do as prime minister, where he sits in terms of the economy, things like that. Mm. Um, and you didn't get any of that yet. So it's not that he needs to announce policies, but I think that until we get to a point where we start to hear, you know, we heard of a rumoured wealth tax before, um, and then that kind of got shoved to the side. But I think until we get to the point where we hear a few of those ways, like who should carry the burden, things like that, it's hard to know fully what type of prime minister he would be. It's interesting watching um, focus groups and uh, sort of seeing the public's reaction to, to him, and we'll come to that in detail in a minute, in a minute with you, Ben. But um, yeah, we, we still we see his sort of personal leader ratings. Uh, so we have we ask about how satisfied you are with the different party leaders and the job they're doing, and we've asked that since Margaret Thatcher was leader of the opposition. So we've got a fair bit of context. And uh, his first rating, uh, gosh, I'm back, I think it's back in May. It was around April, May, anyway. Uh, shortly after he became leader, anyway was as good as anything we've ever seen. So it was the net rating was the same as the best Blair ever got. And it's it's come down a bit since then, which you kind of expect. Um, there's something of a honeymoon period with any new leader. But it's certainly he certainly started positively. That being said, we still find, um, to your point, Katie, that 31% don't have an opinion on him. Um, and I suppose, you, depending on your perspective, that could go one way or another. Um, so there are still lots of people that are on the fence. And just taking the sort of focus group approach to it, I mean, there is... Unfortunately, there is still this kind of gendered unconscious bias that persists uh, in British politics, but I think everywhere uh, to some degree, um, where the, the man, the sort of well-spoken man in a suit, sort of is seen by the public as a sort of credible prime minister, uh, just because that's what they're, they're typically, at least, they're used to. Um, but equally, the sort of man in a suit can be bland, and I don't know what he stands for, and... Uh, or it's just another politician. So that's the line I think he's got to walk as he sort of uh, uh, introduces himself to the British public and tries to cement his reputation. Just because you have th these kind of attributes that people normally associate with a prime minister doesn't necessarily mean that that will hold. It, it could go both ways. And I suppose we'll see how that goes. Um, ben, what's your take on some of Keir Starmer's poll ratings? I mean, having said all of that, um, we had some numbers out at Ipsos this week which showed... Um, he seemed quite quite favourably when compared to Boris Johnson. Yeah, yeah, he does quite well. And uh, just as a ca counterpoint, if I could make about the uh, man in a suit point, Go I actually it. wonder if the Starmer just being a bland man in a suit is 
kind of what the UK public needs because his opposite number, Boris Johnson, is not a man in a suit. 67% of the public think Boris has a lot of personality. Boris Johnson is not your conventional politician. Again, uh, I get scolded for this. Uh, probably lots of people do. I get scolded for saying Boris instead of Johnson because he's he's different, as it were. But no, um, some... Uh, it's hard to train yourself doing... to get out of calling him Boris. I will say that. It, it, some, he's yeah. built that brand up over time, I will say. Yeah, brand Boris. I, I, it's, I remember um, 2008, how it was just We Back Boris, and that was going all the way through London. It's, um, it's, it's been there for well over a decade now. But no, there, is a, there are a lot of echoes of uh, Starmer's performance with the public is similar to Cameron's almost. Uh, it's a um, new guy trying to reverse 10 years of perceived uh, negativity. And um, on issues of capability and competence, Starmer does well. Um, Against Johnson, uh, he has a seven-point lead, so Boris Johnson is perceived uh, as capable by 37% of the public. Uh, 44% say the same for Starmer. On issues of um, understanding the problems facing Britain, Starmer is at 50%. Johnson is at 43%. But on the reverse, on issues such as patriotism, Johnson is perceived as patriotic by uh, 68% of Britons. That compares to 43% for uh, Starmer. Should be, it's, it's interesting to note that the number of people who found uh, Jeremy Corbyn to be patriotic in September of 2019 uh, was 36%. So just seeing a seven-point rise, seven-point increase in perceptions of patriotism for the Labour leader when it was pretty clear based on his conference speech to an empty room uh, that he was trying to appeal to that patriotic red wall kind of electorate after all the red wall is a backdrop it was pretty obvious what his intentions were but no Starmer does well on competence uh, so far people who have an opinion on him so far again it's positive but I keep saying again, but one in three do not really have much of a position on them yet. It's uh, Starmer is perceived by the public as better almost than the Labour Party. So for a long time, I think uh, since since the final days of Tony Blair, more Britons liked the Labour Party than they liked the Labour leader. Now we're seeing Britons like the Labour leader more than they like the Labour Party. That is, I think, is the first time we've seen that in yeah in a quite a long time the same cannot be said for tory leaders conservative leaders are generally more popular than their parties yeah we've got one in four saying that they like here starmer but not the labor party so i suppose katie that shows that the scale of starmer's challenge doesn't it ultimately people might think that he seems credible they like him although a lot of people aren't sure but the labor party brand if you want to call it that isn't going to shift overnight yeah i think it's a is a long path, and I think anyone who's in Starmer's team is quite quick to admit that. If you look at the steps they have to take and what the people they have to win back to be in the chance of having power, you know, by the time of the next election, it's a huge challenge and hard to do. Um, and I think it's interesting in the sense that I think as as a new leader goes, I think his Starmer has been very successful so far. The stats that you were just um, discussing show that. But there's a longer term thing, which is people have uh, concerns and views on Labour more generally. And I think how he changes the general perception of his party is going to depend on lots of things. And um, I think we often... And it's, it's understandable why, but it's been very much about Keir Starmer because clearly they wanted to show who the leader was. It, But I think if you want to change the perception of the party more generally you need to know you know 
who are the prominent people supporting Keir Starmer. You don't hear too much from the shadow cabinet. Um, you know, I think that also if you look at Jeremy Corbyn's time as Labour leader, I mean, obviously it's a weird Labour conference in the sense it's all been online. But if you think about the past few Labour conferences, they're always, you know, uh, various lines that came up from the fringes, which were depicted in the papers as, you know, like loony left and things. I remember there was a fringe where one MP, Labour MP, was talking about a national strike. And I think those kind of stories, when they come out, it can sometimes confirm people's, uh, you know, their presumptions about Labour. So I think it's a longer term thing in trying to change that. Um, and I think policies are going to be an important part of that because one thing, if you look at all the polling, which um, comes up on Labour, is Kirstam's doing well in leadership, um, but economic competence is still something where the Tories are quite far ahead. So what is his plan for that? Because at the moment, it seems to kind of not talk about the economy too much, talk about saving jobs, but not about what you'll actually do. And I think that's going to be a factor in this. There is a risk, it seems, obviously, that that, that Labour is at risk of uh, becoming a one-man band, as it were. There isn't much uh, awareness, as it were, of, of the other um, figures in the shadow cabinet. Take Annalise Dodds, for instance. Um, I can't, I'm not sure if it's been, there's been more recent polling on it, but back in April, just when it was getting off, uh, Annalise Dodds, uh, the, the share of Britons who didn't have a clue who she was, was 83%. And uh, further further to Katie's point about uh, it, 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 it we're, we're focusing a little bit too much on the leaders here, when in reality, people do vote for parties, not leaders. And uh, there's a lot for Labour to still challenge. Take, for example, perceptions of competence. The uh, uh, other polls share uh, elsewhere. Um, the share of Britons who find the Conservatives competent and capable is at uh, 31%. Uh, compared to Labour, that's 27%. Uh, however, uh, compare that with when that poll was last taken in January. So in, in January, the share of Britons who found the Tories competent and capable was at 38% that's down now to seven points. The number of Britons who found Labour competent and capable back in January was just 18%. So you see a nine-point increase in perceptions of competence for Labour, but still, it's an issue that they're going to struggle with. I'll just finish. I mean, I want to wrap up uh, here, but I mean, maybe uh, I'll ask each of you, but how, how concerned do you think the Conservatives should be about the next sort of six months um, and maybe Keir Starmer as well? Because it looks to me like you've got obviously got COVID, the backdrop of that and how that's managed over the winter period and the potential economic fallout. And then, of course, we haven't talked much about Brexit today. Uh, that'd be for another pod podcast, I suppose. Um, but you've got the backdrop of a potential uh, sort of uh, leaving the transition period without a trade deal. Um, so it feels like of the times of the Conservatives in office, this was one of the more challenging but then we think that a lot and then the Conservatives always manage to come through and the the 40% the, the in voting attention polls that say they'll vote Conservative seems to be quite solid. So I suppose, I mean, Katie, your, your impressions on the next uh, sort of six months for the, for the government? I mean, I think the next six months are probably going to be quite horrible for the government, perhaps also for people just living in the country. Um, I mean, they've got loads of challenges. I think that if Boris Johnson gets a Brexit deal, I think that'll be a boost for him and his premiership. I think it's the type of thing, when I speak to Tory MPs who are feeling a bit down in the dumps ultimately about things, that's probably the thing that most often comes up as what would be a unifying moment. Um, but if not, clearly big challenges there. We heard about Kent uh, yesterday and you're beginning to see the, I think the effects of a of not having a deal is going to be something that if, if Boris Johnson fails to get a deal, it's going to be on top of challenges we're already expecting so I think it will be very intense and then just with coronavirus I mean I, my hunch is you know 
we'll have a last minute save Christmas act, um, you know, so long as the figures allow for it in the government's mind, where people will be allowed, you know, see some family, perhaps not a huge number. But ultimately, I think it's going to be not too much to look forward to. And I think that actually the, the question, I think, is more what happens in six months' time, because although I think it's going to be a really difficult few months for the Prime Minister and his Chancellor, and we're going to see the jobs bite back, we're going to see unemployment, I think that there had been hope perhaps that unemployment might not have been as bad as um, it was predicted. Um, I think that hope has been dashed with these new restrictions. I think that people now think it's going to be very bleak again. Um, the recovery is, an, is kind of stalling as a result of it. But I think it's vaguely priced in how bad the next six months are going to be. Um, what I think will be really interesting is, do things improve much in six months' time? Because the Prime Minister obviously given that address, said we had this for six months and talked about a vaccine, all this idea of rapid mass testing to get out of this you know, coronavirus holding pattern. If neither of those materialise, and I think there's, you know, there's a decent chance they don't, there's a decent chance one works, but there's also a decent chance neither do. I think at that point, you know, I, I hear Tory MPs ultimately say things to me such as, it has to be good by next spring. Things have to be much better by next spring. Otherwise, we get to a dangerous point. So I think in terms of Boris Johnson's premiership and the Conservative Party, um, unique challenges in a global pandemic, problems on top of that. But I think that if there is no way by kind of um, March, April next year to see the light at the end of the tunnel for Boris Johnson to start getting back to his agenda, I think it does get quite tricky for the Tories. Final word to you, Ben. Yeah, I, I I think things could get in much worse for the Conservatives, but and, and also uh, I think a public will become a lot more partisan in the in the months to come. Let, let's just uh, remind ourselves that a lot of the public, a large share of the public, are still in. Um, it's wrong to say a rally around the flag kind of uh, feeling, but there is a, a significant number of Britons who are still feeling the need to support the government in times of crisis. You're definitely seeing it in France. Favorability of President Macron is much higher than it was uh, before the crisis, but it's still it's still it's still low, just because uh, Macron is quite unpopular. I think um, in I think I think the Conservatives just should take heart that the next general election is uh, about four years away now, really. Okay, well, certainly lots to keep us occupied, if not if not to cheer us up in the next uh, few months. But Katie Balls and Ben Walker, thank you very much for your time. That was the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast. A big thanks to my guests, Katie Balls and Ben Walker. Hope you enjoyed um, that show. If you like what you hear, please do share it on social media. Send us a question or comment or um, um, like the podcast wherever you uh, like and subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll post this uh, these, this series on both the Ipsos Mori Elections podcast page, but also on my Polling Matters page as well, uh, for those of you that are subscribed through that. Um, appreciate it might be a bit strange having the Ipsos Mori Elections podcast on the Polling Matters feed. Um, but we're not quite done with that yet. Hopefully, uh, between Leo and I and our various uh, childcare uh, slash work uh, commitments, we'll, we'll get that back up and running in the coming months. We're still keen to do that. Um, it's just one of those things where you have to try and uh, work it around other things. But for now, thanks very much for listening. Share, 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 and have a great week.